On this episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with Chase Hayslip of Canary in Blue about the legend and mythology of the Selesau. From the era of Pele to the dawn of Neymar, we go in-depth on the historical legacy that the Brazilian national team has left on the World Cup stage, including the golden age of the 60s to the rebirth in 2002, what went wrong in 2014, and why is Brazil set up for glory in 2018? I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we examine the illustrious history of Brazilian football, here on the World Cup Project. Chase Hayslip, welcome to the World Cup Project. Thanks, Mark. Happy to, happy to be here. And I'm really happy to have you on because today's episode is right down your alley. It's a conversation about Brazil, one of Perfect. the most ubiquitous, um, monolithic sports countries in the world in the sense that it's pretty much soccer and beach volleyball. Pretty much outside of that, it's it's pretty much those two, and I would say 95% of it would be soccer. So let's start with a, um introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got into covering uh, the Brazilian national team, talk a little bit about your podcast, and we'll take it from there. Sure. So, Mark, again, thanks for thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, from the United States originally, currently live in San Francisco. Um, when I was younger uh, in the United States, we didn't really have access to a lot of club football. It was sort of a feature of, of sort of growing up in the United States. It's not a very soccer uh, crazy or soccer friendly country, or at least it, it wasn't until about, I'd say, five years ago or, or maybe 10 years ago now. Um, but I think the one coverage that we really were inundated with when we were growing up was um, national team play. Uh, you know, around 2002, the United States made a pretty deep run in the World Cup, and our country, the United States, essentially became very World Cup and national team focused. Uh, as a result of that, we were, um, you know, the football that I got to watch was was national team coverage, and so I think Brazil obviously is a team that is, as you said, it's ubiquitous with world football and it's ubiquitous with um, national team and World Cup football. So you just sort of naturally start following it. Um, the podcast that I host is called Canary in Blue, and I think it really speaks to a truth for me. And that sort of my original attraction to the team was the the yellow and blue, and of course the players that actually wore the kits didn't much hurt. Uh, growing up, they had huge stars, whether it was Ronaldinho, Kaká, Rivaldo, uh, Ronaldo. So it was it was very easy not to follow them. Uh, and as I got older, I just sort of continued following that trend. There's always, I think, been something really special about watching Brazil play, um, and it's just really something that stuck with me up to the point of actually starting a podcast to cover them. And so. As you mentioned, I do host a podcast now. It's called Carry and Blue, and we cover the Brazilian national team on a week-by-week basis. Uh, so a lot of that involves just covering the players that get called up and how they're performing with their club teams. And then every once in a while, they do play a match. And I think that's the most magic time to be doing a podcast about a national team is when they're actually playing because there's obviously so much to dissect, and you just wait and wait and wait. And when they actually do get to play, it's, it's something really cool. And it's, and it's important to sort of, I think, start – and, and I like that you you kind of went into sort of the your experience with watching that 2002 team, at, because I think it speaks to a truth about how a lot of us, especially in America, got into the sport of soccer. Again, when I was and I was about 11 when that World Cup happened, I had no idea that there were like club teams. 
I just thought, here are these guys that show up every four years and play this tournament. I had no concept of this broad network of leagues and clubs and Champions League and UEFA and Europa League. The World Cup is really sort of the, um, for a lack of a better term, a gateway drug into the wonderful world of soccer. Now, let's talk about Brazil and let's start sort of with the culture. And Brazil, compared to the countries that surround it, and a lot of countries, every country has different culture. But Brazil's, I think, is uniquely theirs. And I think it's uniquely um, suited to what eventually happened over the years when it came to their national team. And it's really sort of, important to understand Brazil's culture before you really get into talking about the national team and its success. And I think those kind of go hand in hand of Brazil's culture really helped the national team get to a level that no other national team in the world has ever reached. Yeah, I definitely don't want to speak uh, for all Brazilians, obviously, especially because I am not, not a Brazilian, but I do think that there is something very Brazilian about football. Uh, I think the expressive nature of the people and the culture is something that just blends perfectly with the game, to be honest. And if you ever go to Brazil, you'll notice that the game is everywhere. I mean, it's being played on streets, it's being played on the beach, it's being played on uh, the limited pitches that they have, it's being played indoors, it's being played everywhere. And of course, Brazil is one of the largest countries in the world, so simple math, you know what I mean, almost dictates that they would be somewhat successful. But I do think that beyond that sort of mathematical equation, as I said, there is something very cultural about the relationship between Brazil and football. Uh, and I think that you can, when you look across the history of the game, I think that when Brazil is at its best, it features players who are so sort of in love with their own game that they can't help but express themselves through it. I mean, I think when you look at the 1970 World Cup team and the 1982 World Cup team, and then uh, 2002 to a certain extent as well, uh, I think that the players are so expressive, and I think that their joy for the game is so obvious when you watch it, and I think that that's why those teams are so celebrated in Brazil, and we'll get into the details of this a little bit more in the rest of this podcast, but the 1994 team, by contrast, did win the World Cup, but I don't think it's remembered as fondly because they, you know, there wasn't as much joy that was really present in that team, and I think you could even say that about the current crop of players, which is why people are so excited about this team and why I think a lot of people think Brazil are the favorites. They have these great players who are uh, the joy in their game is so obvious. Like you know, Neymar is an obvious one, but also a Marcelo or a Gabriel Jesus or a Coutinho or even a, a Danny Alves. Um, I think as a country, as well as these players, just a really genuine love for football, uh, and I think it just that's what makes it bode so well for the summer, and I think it's what's made them so successful over the years. I think the teams that they've had that have not had that real passion and joy for the game have been the ones that haven't fared so well or aren't remembered so fondly by the, by the country. And, and I want to latch on to a word you used before in that thing. I want you to talk about the expression, but let's just back up a little bit and just football is in general has been imported around the world for the last century and a half, starting in, starting in England, starting in Europe and expanding out through imperialization. And that's how a lot of things spread. But in this case, it's a good thing. It's a sport. Football spreading out through imperialization. I think what makes Brazil unique to any other country 
in the world that got the game imported to them was that they exported a different style of the game. They revolutionized what the game was. And it, it was something when it got there, and then it became something else when it left, and it sort of spread out. And I want you to kind of break down that sort of expression, that when, when you're talking about expression, and how a Brazilian player thinks on a pitch, as opposed to, let's say, an Italian player or a German player, especially in those old, you know, especially, I would say, earlier on in history when you started to see that uh, delineation between the styles. Yeah, definitely. I, I, th I always, when people ask me about this, the first thing I always go to is, is sort of the 1970 team. Uh, I think that they are often remembered as sort of the hallmark of Brazilian soccer. I think when people talk about Brazil's relationship with the game, the 1970 team comes up most of the time, uh, mostly because it, it's, it is probably, in my opinion, it is probably the greatest team that's ever played, uh, the, the greatest starting 11 that's ever been assembled, at least from a national team perspective. And um, I think it's really interesting because it was actually a confluence of a lot of different, um, a lot of different factors at the same time. Because I think that team was so beautiful to watch aesthetically. Uh, they did an amazing job moving the ball. All 11 players could play all 11 positions. Um, each player had more skill than the last, it felt like. And they just worked together as a unit. They were geniuses on their own, and then they were geniuses together. And I think it was, it's really interesting because that 1970 World Cup was the first World Cup in Technicolor. Uh, so it was actually broadcast around the world in color for the first time. And can you imagine being somebody who is living in the UK or is living in Europe and is not exposed, because, you know, at that time, obviously, Brazilians were not coming to Europe in droves in the same way that they are now. Um, imagine seeing that team play for the first time in color with the yellow and the blue, you know what I mean, and playing that aesthetically beautiful style that they're now synonymous with, right? Yeah. It must have been just this massive shock. And I think Brazil has spent most of its footballing history exporting players and exporting ideas and exporting a way of playing. Um, and I think that that... Although it happened before that 1970 team, in my opinion, that 1970 team is the greatest expression of it. Does that make sense? No, and I and I agree with that. And I think it goes back again to, and we'll just take a little bit of a history detour to 1950. And when Brazil got the World Cup for the first time, and their team, which at previous World Cups, there had only been three beforehand, had been group stage, first round, and third place. Again, the World Cup was a very different tournament than it was, um, than it is today. But you got that sort of um, fever pitch to where they get to the final, they lose to Uruguay 2-1, to one, and it's this national mourning. And there's that sort of famous story of, I don't know if you want to tell the story of Pele, um, that Pele story about what he said to his father after the uh, 1950 final, but sort of as we kind of bring this conversation into Pele, because I think you have to when you're talking about Brazil, how how he sort of changed the game, like as the either the best player of all time or the most influential player of all time, probably both. Yeah, I think he's both. Uh, I think he is the best player of all time and definitely the most influential. He was, he, if you watch highlights of Pele, he was so far ahead of his time. 
I mean, he just, the things that he could do with the ball, um, the position that he played as a false nine, as a creative player, um, a lot of people talk about, will say things, it's mostly young people, so give them the benefit of the doubt, but will say things about the way that Barcelona reinvented football when Pep was there. And Pep's an amazing coach. You'll never hear me disparage him. He's an amazing, amazing coach and amazing mind. Um, but what Pep was doing with Messi, you know what I mean, in the during Barcelona's you know, pomp in the Champions League was something that Pele was doing 50 years ago. You know what I mean? He was, he was so far ahead of his contemporaries in the way that he thought about, thought about the game. And I think what makes Pele great and why he will never be surpassed, in my opinion, is people forget that when he won his first World Cup, he was 17 years old. I mean, he comes off, he comes off the bench during the 1958 World Cup. Uh, Brazil had been struggling in the tournament, and they felt like they really needed a shakeup. And so they bring in Pele essentially off the bench and say they're, – they're kind of throwing all of their cards on the table and saying hopefully this works out, right? And um, Pele comes in, and they end up winning their first World Cup ever uh, in Sweden in 1958. And you're right to say, Mark, he was, he was a transformative player in the way that, in the way that he changed the game. Um, Garincha is another player that is often not talked about, who many Brazilians will tell you was as good, if not better, than Pele. Uh, you know, Pele was injured for the 1962 World Cup, uh, but Grincha ended up being the player that sort of led them led them to glory. Um, he had a really troubled life outside of football, which is why I think he, he's not, and he lived a lot shorter life than Pele, which I think is why he's not as heralded. Uh, but it was that whole collection of players around that sort of 1958 team. Some of them were holdovers from the disappointment in 1950, uh, but those teams were so ahead of their time in terms of. Um, uh, you know, their training, their tactics, their management, their style. I mean, they were all precursors for football. Uh, and, and the way that the game ended up progressing after that um, is really thanks to the sort of the flag that they planted at that time. And you, you talk about those teams. They won the World Cup in 1958, 1962, and then they won it again in 1970. So that's winning three out of four... Of Three out of four World Cups. In 1966, by the way. A lot of people will talk about how the tactics that were used by England during 1966 and the, what the referees let players get away with and also the conditions that the South American teams were required to train in when they arrived in England were a bit suspect. There's a couple of great articles about that, but... Uh, but yes, I just I don't want to gloss over that because it's, very, it's a bit controversial uh, yeah. and not, like, I think widely recognize that there were some things that happened in 66 which weren't totally by the book. Well, in that in that year, um, I'm just going through it again, 1966, Brazil actually finished third in their group to Portugal and Hungary. Yeah. So, a disappointment, obviously, but I, I can't imagine in... Um, I cannot imagine a national team winning three out of the next four World Cups. I, I just, I don't see that happening again. And we talk about Pele and we talk about sort of his influence and he, it, I think people either don't realize it or they, or they just don't have a cognitive um, thought about it. He never played really in Europe at all. Like it was a time, it was such a different time where this was a, it's almost mythical in that most of the games he played were in Brazil for Santos and there were times where Santos would pretty much put him on tour and they'd go around the world and play friendlies. But in reality, the only time you really got to see Pele or Brazil was either at the World Cup if you were there or if they came to your town. 
So just the idea that the greatest player that we'll ever see is somebody that is allowed to sort of live on in sort of mythical ways as opposed to sort of having every last thing that they did scrutinized. Like, again, compare him to the stars of today. And I just find that fascinating that the myth was allowed to be built and the myth was not allowed to be um, broken in any way. There was no way for it to be sort of talked against, even though Pele, again, there's very few flaws in his game, but imagine him playing in 2017 and having some, you know, British commentator talking about of how, how about how he dribbles the ball too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just I, and just talk again about sort of how that that was built over the Pele era, that sort of that mythology of the Brazilian national team. I no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is a we live in a very different time now, right? Where we have access. There's so many things that are at our fingertips, right? Like I, I woke up this morning and watched Corinthians play in Brazil. You know what I mean? And I live in the United States. It's it's just a completely different time. We have access to so many different um, matches, and everyone has an opinion. If you go on Twitter, everyone has an opinion about every player ever. You know, the other day, one of the clubs that I follow is is in for like a 17 year old player who only plays in the Serbian league, and there's a guy on Twitter saying that he knows everything there is to know about this player, and I'm like, how? You know, like it just seems impossible, right? Yeah. I mean, that everyone knows everything there is to know about every player, right? So, you're right that he sort of escaped scrutiny, and I think that the great thing about world football at that time was that. It is true. The only time you got to see these teams, you know, if you lived in Europe, the only time you got to really see Brazil was during the World Cup, right? And they would come and they would play and they would dominate. And it it did allow them to achieve this sort of mythical nature, right? And that's not to say that they weren't so much better than everyone else, because they were, uh, and the results sort of prove it. Uh, But you're definitely on to something in the sense that, you know, Pele traveled the world uh, playing friendlies for Santos against uh, European and, and clubs and clubs and even in Africa and Asia, essentially just proving his metal and showing what he was made of. I find it interesting that a lot of people do like to disparage Pele now by saying that he never played in Europe or by saying that he was playing a bunch of farmers in Brazil. I, I think that this is one of the very, very harmful misconceptions you know, about the about football that was happening in Brazil. If you played in the the Paulista, you know, the Sao Paulo Championship at that time when he was playing in the 1960s and 1970s, you were playing in the most competitive league in the world. There's no question in my mind. I mean, this these were world-class players, many of whom were playing in the World Cup squads that were dominating the rest of the world um, at World Cups. So, you know, I think for people to kind of throw that shade on Pele, they're not understanding the history of our fair game, right? Which is that yeah. at that time... Brazil was not a net exporter of talent. The talent was remaining in Brazil, and, Pe- and they were winning World Cups with that talent, and Pele was conquering it year after year after year after year. Yeah, and I'm going to make a sort of tricky analogy, but I think it works in this context, which is that back in the 1910s, the 1920s, and the 1930s in American baseball, there were two leagues. There were, the, there were three leagues, actually. The American League, the National League, and then there was the Negro League. And... They never played each other. Like that, you you would never see the New York Yankees play the um, the Cincinnati Grays. You would never see that. And I think that it, it's it. I I say that as sort of a way to sort of knock down that fallacy that you were talking about, which is yes, if those Brazilian players in the 1950s and 60s had been allowed to, or 
would have had the ability to play in Europe, they would have dominated those leagues as well, or they would have been very good in them. It was just, it was sort of the instance of, it just wasn't feasible for whatever reason. And again, you saw when African-Americans were allowed to play in the major leagues, they were pretty good. (laughs) And there was no sort of, well, what would happen if they actually started playing white players? It's, It's not a perfect analogy, but it makes the point that the circumstances were just completely different. And I look at it as the perfect sort of, and I and I, I feel like in history, Brazil will be remembered as sort of the perfect exporters of the game in the sense that they brought the, the, the style in Africa, or the, just even think about how much African football, I think, is influenced by that Brazilian team and the way that you see all of these players that come out from Africa and that the way they play. It's that same thing. It's it's it, the the influence is there all over the world. And it's mainly because Pele was such an international star. So, let's move a little bit to the lean years, I guess you want to call it, although I'll, there'd be a lot of national teams that would um take what Brazil had between 1974 and 1990. Fourth place in 74, third place in 78, second group stage in 82. Again, the competition was a little different. Quarterfinals in 86 and the round of 16 in 1990. So this is a this is a national team that had come off of one of the greatest runs in the history of world football and probably will never be matched again. And they're struggling now in that in that um, in that time frame. Anything you can talk about when it comes to, I guess, what you would call the dark years of Brazilian football. Yeah, I think you're right to say that it was a, it was a more of a barren time, although many countries would have killed to have had the record that Brazil had during that period. Uh, I think that there's definitely a couple of things to break down here. First of all, I think the political situation in Brazil was very influential on a lot of the teams that played during that time. Uh, uh, Brazil was going through an on-and-off military dictatorship over that period, and I think that their style of rule ended up being infused many times into the style of the team, which, as I said at the top of the podcast, is not something that is conducive, I think, to Brazil uh, playing the best football that it can. Um, I think that there is one really, really intense uh um, objection to that, and that is the 1982 team. Um, I still think that 1982 is probably the greatest team to not win the World Cup in history, uh, and I think that the, the players that they had in that team were all world class. I mean, the midfield of, of Zico, Socrates, Falcao, and, and Crezzo is one of the great midfields that's ever been concocted ever. Um, I think that they were one striker short. Uh, their striking, uh, starting striker that summer actually got injured six days before the start of the World Cup, and they were forced to start uh, Serginho, uh, who was just not fit for the style that they were looking to play. I think it ended up costing them, and, and also, not to go into the details, but they played Italy in the second round, and Italy just had the performance of a lifetime, basically, uh, that allowed, that meant Brazil was... Uh, kicked out of the World Cup. So I think, you know, it was a barren time, but 82 is a fantastic team, probably deserved to win it, but just didn't. Um, but I think that the 1994 team was what sort of shook the tree a little bit, and it was a brutally efficient team. I think people will say that without 1982, 1994 does not actually happen. Uh, so there was sort of a, a trade off in that respect, in the sense that 
1982 team was very free-flowing, and um, when they lost, a lot of people describe it as the death of naivety in football. Um, and so when Brazil deci- decided that they were going to be brutally efficient, the 1994 team was what came out of that decision, and they ended up winning the World Cup with it. So um, I think people would trade the 1994 win for the 1982 win, to be honest. If you ask a lot of uh, Brazilian supporters what they think, they would say that they would have rather lifted the cup in 1982 and 1994 never happened, which is pretty interesting, in, in my opinion. And, and let's explore that, because that's a really important concept that you're bringing up, that a lot of national teams um, don't, let's say, either don't have the luxury to have or just don't have that mentality like you watch italy italy does not care how they win they want to win and they will do pretty much anything they can to win it won't be pretty it won't be exciting it'll be you know it'll be a one nil or a one one or a two one but they'll win germany is that sort of the same way germany really doesn't care if their football looks all that pretty if it looks pretty it's sort of incidental It's about being efficient and about winning. Brazil, as a culture, is one of those different types of cultures where it's not just winning. It's how you win. And if you don't win in a certain way, or if you win in sort of a boring, mundane way, sure, they'll, you know, they'll give you the golf clap, but it won't be this sort of celebration of life that I think Brazilians like football to be. I don't know if, I, if you agree with me in sort of that whole sort of, if football is a celebration of life and a celebration of creativity, that winning without that sort of life and that creativity, it's almost like it's not even really worth it. I, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that there is a romanticism to it for sure. And if you go on Globo right now and do a search for, you know, articles about past World Cup winners, or past World Cup teams, you will find more articles about 1982 than 1984. I guarantee it. There's no question in my mind. And I think that people are, you still see articles come out now um, and interviews done with the players of the 1982 team who are dissecting that loss, you mean, against Italy and trying to understand why it happened, what went wrong, who's at fault, you know, I mean, these types of things because it was such a tragedy. I mean, they were the best team. And not only were they the best team, they played expansive aesthetically pleasing beautiful uh football and it was a real shame that they did not win and i think it was almost fitting that they lost to italy it was kind of this ultimate you know extremes sort of meet right and this is where you know we we sort of end up and i think if you ask a lot of you know football scholars um people will say that that moment when italy beat Uh, Brazil in the 1982 World Cup was one of those signature moments where the game sort of changes forever and it'll never be the same, right? Because it's proof that if you're pragmatic, that you can get results over a team that's better than you. And you and you see the results of that today. And and the term we use now is parking the bus. Yes. But I, I think if you talk to an Italian, I don't think they necessarily want to describe it as parking the bus. It's a it's just it's a different philosophical style on how to play a game, and that's why football. It's kind of why I fell in love with football because I tend to like to overthink things, and football is the ultimate game for people that like to overthink things. In the sense that, especially from a from a watcher's perspective, it's like okay, well, what tactics is this, are this team going to use, and how do you shut down this guy? And you know, what do you, we, we can play this game one way, or we can play it another. We can be expansive, or we can be con- uh, compact. 
you know, it, it's, there's so many um, subjective lenses that you can take when you're watching the game. And I think as Brazil and Italy is a perfect example of the differences in how people see the game and how the way and how the game can be played. And both styles can be effective depending on the era and depending on the time and place. But let's talk about that 94 team just quickly. I know apparently nobody in Brazil likes the 94 team, but we're <laughs> going to talk about them a little bit anyway, just, just as a, just as sort of a, to be completist. So they went through their group. They, um, they topped their group. They beat that group inv- involved Sweden, Russia, and Cameroon. And then we go into the, um, Round of 16, they beat the United States 1-0, beat the, ne- beat the Netherlands 3-2, beat uh, Sweden 1-0, and then beat it- Italy on penalties 3-2. So, yeah, I can kind of see why they didn't like that team all that much. A lot of close games, a lot of just getting the results, and they had to pull it out in a penalty shootout, which I, I can't imagine that Brazilians particularly like the penalty shootout as a concept. <laughs> so I, I-, I-, I can kind of see what you mean. But um, let's spin that forward a little bit. 98, they were the runners-up against uh, France, who yeah. beat them 3-0 in the World Cup. Any um, any thoughts on that run? Anything sort of how Brazilians see that team? Because that was the early stages of what would eventually become the 2002 team, because you had Ronaldo on that team. I'm not sure if you had Rivaldo on that team yet, but you did have Ronaldo on that team. Yeah, and I thought, you know, I think that the big takeaway from the 98 team was trying to make sense of what happened in the final with Ronaldo. I mean, I, you know, because if you remember the controversy, he's left off the team sheet uh, when it's announced. And then, you know, 15 minutes before the match, he it's it comes out that he's actually going to play. There's, uh, you know, speculation that he had a... An, you know, a seizure or some sort of fit in the locker room right before the match started. And then he said he didn't want to play, but then the coaches said you have to play. And there's all sorts of speculation about whether Nike was involved because of the branding of the team and all these types of things. So um, I, I think that people recognize the greatness of the 98 team. I think the challenge with that is there's still so much mystery around what happened right before the start of the final. And obviously France were so wrapped up. I mean, it's a World Cup final on home soil. So you, if you're Brazil in that situation, and France had a great team, uh, and if you're Brazil in that scenario, you have to be at your best. And there was something horribly wrong with Ronaldo. And I don't know if we'll ever find out what that was or what happened there, but without him at full strength, I think that they sort of slept, walked through that. It's, it's hard to imagine anyone sleepwalking through a World Cup final, but I think when you watch the tape back, that's how it seems. To well, and, and, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. You go yeah, ahead. so for for my other show, I I did um, I got the France perspective on that from uh, Guillaume, and that that show's already dropped. Check it out in the um, in the archives if you haven't heard it yet. It's fantastic, but France just seemed on a different level mentally, and I think when when you talk about a game where inches matter and where moments matter and everything's on the line, France just had that we're not going to be stopped mentality in that game. And I think because Brazil was just not ready and not mentally ready, and you could just tell they were falling asleep on the on the corners, on the Zidane headers, two just yeah. two easy goals, you know, right in the box. And that was usually not a Zidane specialty to go in there and get headers, but you... you you saw it that 
obviously this Brazil team was just not up to it at that particular time. But in, in a certain way, it helps us get to 2002, which is the last time that Brazil have won the World Cup. That World Cup was held in Japan and uh, South Korea. So all the games were on at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, for me, they were on 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, San Francisco time, that's like five. Uh, that's like a 5 a.m. final if you were living there back then. That's, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty early to get up and watch a match. But um, just talk about sort of the... Um, let's, let's talk about this in two ways. The expectations going into 2002, but also sort of the two stars of 2002. In my mind, maybe not the best players, but not maybe not necessarily the best players, but the two that I, I think about are Ronaldo and Ronaldinho. Two very different types of players, but I think in their own way sort of um, stand for something in Brazil's uh, national team and footballing history. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think... Starting with the first part of it, uh, I think a lot of people forget that Brazil really struggled to qualify for that World Cup. Um, Brazil has never missed a World Cup in its history. Uh, but I, that was one where they actually barely made it to South Korea. Uh, but once they arrived, they were completely unplayable. I mean, I, I don't think anyone could, was was going to stop was ever going to stop them during that World Cup. Um, the three R's, obviously brilliant up front, Ronaldo, Rivaldo, and Ronaldinho. And I think that they probably had Brazil's best fullback combination since the 1960s uh, with Cafu and Roberto Carlos. Uh, it was an amazing team. I think you're right to point out Ronaldo and Ronaldinho. Uh, they were both sensational. One player, I, I do think Rivaldo, it was his birthday this week, actually, so he posted a lot of stuff on our on our Twitter feed, uh, particularly his vi- a video of his performance during the 2001 Copa America final against Uruguay. Watching that video, it's just a reminder, he was so underrated. I mean, yeah. so underrated. It, and it, I think it was because he was a bit of a journeyman. He played in a lot of different places, and I think his personality was a bit was a bit of a struggle for for managers. He would take matches off. He would take seasons off, to be honest. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think um, it, it just it served to taint what otherwise would have been a fantastic legacy. Because I think I actually think he was better than Ronaldinho in that World Cup. I mean, he, he wasn't better than Ronaldo, I don't think, but he was fantastic. I mean, he, he was everywhere, um, doing a little bit of everything, being a creative force behind that team. But, um, you know, with Ronaldo coming back uh, from his knee injury, and a lot of people say that, I mean, he was still great afterwards, uh, but a lot of people say that if he had never had that injury, he would have been even better, which is almost scary to think about, to be honest. But um, it was his redemption moment for sure. After 1998, he was great, uh, especially in the final. And Ronaldinho, that famous free kick about England, uh, or against England, I um, we hosted, a, we actually had a member of uh, of your podcast, uh, Mark, on this one, the Ronaldinho retrospective a couple months back, just remembering his entire career. And uh, we had about six or seven people. I asked them the same question. I said, did you think he meant it, you know, with that goal against England, that looping free kick that may have been a cross, may have been a shot? Um I think he meant it. Uh, some people don't. I think a lot of English people don't. Uh, but he was great, too. And I think it was sort of a passing of the torch in terms of after that World Cup, uh, you know, he, he did go back to Paris, but then he goes on to Barcelona and he becomes just the greatest player in the world. And I think yeah. what he what he learned during that tournament certainly, you know, made him a better player going well, forward. And it's interesting when you speak about the three R's, because to a degree, you can make the argument that all three of them, to varying degrees, underachieved 
depending on their um, ben, depending on what you thought their ceiling was. I think Absolutely. I I think in general that Ronaldo Ronaldinho got the most out of his talent, and that's not saying that he got all of what he could have gotten out of his talent. But I just I find that generation of Brazilian players, especially that front line, especially those players, again they're allowed to sort of fade into mythology as well, in the sense that you never quite got everything from them. And you can look back at them, and I think this is sort of, uh, it's sort of uniquely Brazilian in the sense that they were all sort of wonderfully expressive players that were, to certain degrees, not allowed to fully express that whether it be due to injuries or due to um, being a little uh, funny in the head, however you want to describe it. And I think this 2002 year, and I and I remember watching this World Cup specifically, it was the first one I really got into and watched. There was no one even close. I mean, it's one of those World Cups where there was one team that really had an opportunity to win it or really should have won it. And, there, and I mean, look at the semifinals of that World Cup. It was Germany and South Korea, and it was Brazil and Turkey. Now, you knew pretty much, unless something really wrong happened, that Brazil and Germany should have been in the final. But also you knew, unless something really wrong happened, Brazil should have won that World Cup, and they did. So, just again, just go into sort of the legacy of that 2002 team and where their sort of place in Brazil's um, tapestry really lies. Yeah, I mean, I think that they are certainly, you know, one of the shining, um, they have a very shining place among the folklore. I, I think you've, you've captured it brilliantly in the sense that it is unfortunately true. I mean, Ronaldo with his injuries, Rivaldo with uh, his, um, some of his decisions. I, I, I said funny in the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ronaldinho with his lifestyle choices. I think all three struggled to get the maximum out of the immense talent that they had. Um, I think that the 2002 team, what is so romantic about it, and and I think you could... What it, let me start over, Mark. Let me cut that really quickly. I think what is so romantic about that 2002 team is that it's sort of it's sort of like that shooting star, you know what I mean? Yeah. You see, for one summer, we saw three players with immense talent ceilings maybe reach their ceilings together in the same team, you know what I mean? And they do it for one summer, and they capture a World Cup in style. They dominate almost every match that they played, uh, and they were brilliant. And I think that that's why they go up in the folklore is because they have those three players up top that were all enigmas in their own sort of way, uh, but they all sort of peaked together at the right time in sort of that shooting star kind of metaphor. And I think that that's why they are so appreciated. And unfortunately, and we talk about that shooting star, their 2006 and their 2010 teams were still good, but in 2006 they lost to France in the quarterfinals. And then in 2010, uh, I wish I could bring this up off the top of my head, but I can't. Um, they, yeah, they go out against the Netherlands in the quarterfinals. Yeah, you can, but you can do, you got it off the top of your head. But just talk about those two, just talk about those two World Cups and sort of what I, I wouldn't say what happened because it's not like they choked necessarily. It's just 
those two teams just didn't seem to be as strong as the one in 2002. Yeah, so it's a really interesting conversation, actually. And um, just to quickly plug a piece of our own, um, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago. It's called A Decade of Dysfunction, and it talks about what happened between 2006 and 2014 um, that led essentially to the circumstances that would open up in the 7-1. to uh, And it starts with 2006, to be honest. And you say that they didn't choke. I think if you talk to a lot of Brazilians, they would say that that was absolutely a massive choke job. They didn't win in 2006. Um, expectations were huge for that team. Uh, the Magic Square, Adriano, Ronaldo, Kaká, and Ronaldinho. I mean, could you dream of a better front four? It was a brilliant team. Uh, but they just the expectations were not met. I mean, I think Ronaldo wasn't in great shape. Shape. Ronaldinho was exhausted. He had just won Player of the Year and basically had won everything there was to win at Barcelona. I think he was tired. Um, I don't think the players meshed well together like they were supposed to. And I think the manager chopped and changed way too many times during the tournament. He didn't know what his best team was. Uh, he, he spent too much time during the competition itself. Uh, trying to figure that out. And in fact, against France, they played a formation I don't think they had ever played before, uh, and it just looked sloppy. I mean, it really did. And I think, I do think that Ronaldo was chasing the goals record during that World Cup, and yeah. I think that, um, I mean, he was never going to be benched, but there was pressure to play him. I mean, there was pressure to play him because mm-hmm. of the goals record, and there was pressure to play him because of the the Nike advertisements that were like sort of surrounding the entire competition, which he featured very heavily in. Um, and so I don't know whether he would have been benched if those factors were not involved, but he looked really out of shape during the tournament. Um, and I think that that really cost them. Um, and the team, like I said, the team just didn't gel very well. So it just turned into a big, big, big scandal when they didn't actually win that competition. And, and, and let me just, I want to have you talk on something that you just mentioned that I think is very interesting. The Nike sponsorship. When did that start, and how has that sort of affected Brazil over... Because it, it I, I just find that interesting, you're talking about sort of, in two instances, 98 and 2006, not sorry, yeah, 98 and 2006, you're talking about Ronaldo and talking about how the Nike sponsorship could have played a factor in either him playing or him not or whatever. Just talk about that for a minute, because I, I, I think that's something worth talking about. Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, for anyone who's like an American, uh, the weight of the Brazilian jersey, the Brazilian shirt, is like wearing a Lakers jersey or like wearing a Yankees jersey. It's a brand. It means more than the, the fibers that you're putting on. Um, it, and I think when Nike signed up to get the sponsorship for the shirt, they were signing up for a brand of Brazilian soccer. And that is related to mark all the things that we've been talking about in this podcast. Aesthetically beautiful football, players that were expressive and joyful, you know what I mean? Like sambaing up and down the pitch to win every match uh, without without making it look too difficult. Um, and I think that the the tinfoil hat wears among us, and I am, I am one of them, uh, is that Nike has some influence uh, on the players that are selected for the team. Uh, and whether that extends to just the squad or the actual starting 11, I don't know that we'll, we'll ever really know. Uh, but it is something that is just sort of always following the national team. Is this idea that Nike sort of has this outsized influence as to who's actually playing for the team and who, because they are really interested in who's going to be on the adverts, you know what I mean, and who's going to be in the big posters and who's going to be on the commercials and all these types of things. So um, it is something that unfortunately has followed the team around. Basically, as as long as Nike's been the shirt sponsor, that's been a thing. 
yeah, th- that's that's interesting too because I think that, and this is going to sort of uh, dovetail into what we're going to talk about when it comes to 2014, and I I'm going to title this um, this podcast Brazil and the Weight of Expectation, and you talked about it in 2006 where um, everyone thought in Brazil that Brazil was going to win the World Cup. Now, I I submit to you that I think pretty much every year, maybe except for, you maybe can tell me one or two exceptions, but pretty much every year Brazil thinks it's going to win the World Cup, or at least they're optimistic and they put on the, they put on the strong united front that, hey, we're going to win the World Cup. And in most years, they're probably a top three, top four favorite to win it. So it's not that much of an outsized um, expectation. But we talk about 2014. The World Cup in Brazil, for the first time since 1950. So do the math, that's 64 years. Yeah. And Brazilians have been waiting 64 years to... And this is something that I believe that a lot that a lot of football crazed countries would have done, but just having the memory of that 1950 World Cup loss, even if you weren't alive, even if your dad wasn't alive for it, your grandfather or your grandmother probably was. And knowing that finally we have a pretty good team. Now we're going to talk about how good that team may or may not have been, but. We have a team that's one of the favorites to win it. We're in our home country. This is what this is our World Cup to win. Talk about that mindset going into 2014. And you had probably started. I don't know if you'd started covering the team yet, but that that atmosphere and that that building of the pressure and that pressure must have been building for years. And years, because they knew they were hosting the World Cup probably about seven to eight years before they even had it. Yeah. So I, just yeah. talk about that pressure and that pressure building and building and building. Sure. No, I, and I think um, the, your point about the 1950 World Cup is a really good one. And if you go to Brazil, people still talk about it. I mean, even if you weren't alive for it, you know, Wasir um, Barbosa, who was the goalkeeper for that team uh, and made the quote-unquote mistake. If you watch the replay, I don't think it's a mistake. I think he just got beat near post uh, in the World Cup final. People still talk about it. And he was ex- um, sort of like exiled from Rio after he made that mistake and was because he was recognized too much and people would say stuff to him on the streets. He had to actually leave Rio because he was so damaged by the loss. Um, so it was talked about. It's still talked about now. Um, and I think that people really saw 2014 as an opportunity to exercise some of those demons. Uh, and I think the team, as you say, the team was the team. I, I mean, it, it was good, not great. It wasn't the best Brazil team that has ever walked on the pitch. I don't think it was as good as, say, the 06 team. But um, but it was still good. It was, it, it was decent. Um, and I think that there was a lot of pressure and I think it only was enhanced when they won the 2013 Confederations Cup. And I think 
obviously they run through that tournament. Uh, they beat, I think it was Uruguay in the semifinals. Uh, Julio Cesar, I believe, has a save on a penalty in the first half that sort of rescues them. Uh, and then they play Spain in the final. And what a lot of people, I mean, now we take this for granted, but Spain hadn't, the wheels hadn't fallen off Spain yet. We still thought they were the best team in the world, right? And Brazil kicked the pants off them in the final 3-0 at the American And people think, holy shit. We're going to win the World Cup on home soil. It's going to happen. If we can beat Spain on home soil, we can beat anybody, right? Yeah. Um, they go into the World Cup. I think the emotional weight of those matches can't be understated, as I said. It was all, in my opinion, a bit much. I mean, the, the national anthem, goosebumps. You can still watch it today. It's intense. Yeah. Um, and before we get into some of that, let me just backtrack a little bit into sort of the man that, well, at that point, he wasn't really a man. He was more of a, of a child prodigy. But let's talk about Neymar. Sure. And yes, I I um I fully understand I can be I can be impartial here. But um I, I've always been a fan of him. I think I just I'll lay it out for those of you who may be listening for the first time. Those of you who have listened to my shows before, you know very well what I think of Neymar. But um just for, for Chase and for the people that are just listening to this for the first time, I think he's a special generational talent. If not that he's ever going to be Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo level, I I feel like he's one of those players that, if he reaches his potential, will be at that doorstep, if not in the house with those players. But I think he is uniquely challenged in that he has grown up a child prodigy in an era of YouTube, um, Facebook, the internet, 24-7 news media, 24-7 sports news media. This is a this is a kid that basically was taken off the streets of, um, I believe, Sao Paulo, and turned into the next Pele, possibly before he was ready to be the next Pele. But... Here's a player who I believe, if and I'm, I'm pretty sure I have my timeline right, had just signed his Barcelona deal or was about to sign his Barcelona deal before that World Cup started. So I'm pretty sure most people knew where he was going at that point and knew what the potential was. And the storyline, at least in, I guess, an American standard, and I guess for the Brazilians too, was the kid that was going to break out in this World Cup, this this young kid, this next great Brazilian super mega star, he's going to carry him to a World Cup, the same way Pele carried Brazil to the World Cup in 58. About the same age, you would say maybe about the same talent level at that point in their lives. Just, again, go into that for a minute, because I think th- that Neymar is almost synonymous with this whole story. Yeah, I, Mark, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head. We talked about this earlier on this podcast, but Pele winning the World Cup at 17 years old, it almost becomes um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of the what's the word. It, it's like written in the story. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? It's meant to yeah. be. It's destiny. It's destiny. Yeah, it's destiny. And I think... Um, the fact that it was all, oh my God, there's so much we could talk about here, but uh, you walked around Rio at that time, everyone's wearing Neymar shirts. Everybody is. You didn't see a single Fred shirt, you know what I mean, in all of Brazil, right? And, um, Poor Fred. I think, 
Yeah, I, I feel bad for Fred. Poor Fred. Uh, but uh, he plays for Santos just like Pele. He wins the Copa Libertadores uh, for Santos just like Pele. You know what I mean? He stays in Brazil for a, a while and plays in the club league just like Pele. You know what I mean? It's it is this building of destiny, right? And and it becomes this narrative almost that he is the only one, you know, who can rescue this Brazilian team, right? And can win the World Cup for Brazil on home soil in 2014, exercise the demons in 1950. It's, it, the story is almost too good to be true, right? It, it's stranger than fiction. It's bigger than fiction in a way, right? And I think you're so right. He, he was part of it. And I don't think that he necessarily wanted it, but he got it even if he didn't. Um, and I think he and, and, and by the way, once the World Cup starts, he plays the part, right? I mean, he scores the tying goal against Croatia. Uh, by the way, if you watch the replay of that game, he maybe shouldn't have even been on the pitch because he elbowed Modric right in the face uh, about 10 minutes before he scored that goal. Um, yeah, that'll happen once in a while. He does that, one, he do, he does that once in a while. He's definitely a bit petulant, for yeah. sure. Yes. Um, he scores the winning penalty, or he scores the go-ahead penalty in that match. Um, he doesn't score against Mexico because it's a nil-nil draw. He scores twice um, against... Uh, uh, against Cameron in the last group stage. His corner leads to the goal against Chile, and he scores the winning penalty against Chile in the round of 16, and then against Colombia. He's really integral. And then he gets hurt. Yeah. And it's like the whole country is like, well, now, like, it's like the narrative had been just shattered. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a second. I just want to go through the group and just kind of walk through it for a minute. Group A, Brazil drew um, Mexico, Croatia, and Cameroon. They beat Croatia in their first match. They drew against Brazil in their second match, and that was the one where um, the the Mexican uh, uh, Guillermo Ochoa stood on his head. Yes. Now, after that game, were the warning bells starting to go off? Like, you know, you think you're like in this, you're in this dream. You think about it, like you're in this fantasy and you're in this dream, and all of a sudden you start like starting to realize that you're dreaming. Like, if you've ever had one of those dreams where you you actually start to realize you're waking up or that it is actually a dream, were the warning bells going off at that point to anybody? I think so, and I think it was more stylistically than anything else. I mean, they were not... They were not playing attractive football. It just was. It was a bit utilitarian. Uh, David Luiz, who I love and will never speak ill of, uh, was sort of a wild card. Uh, they were. They. Uh, I don't think Scolari had a great sense for what his best team was, and he was chopping and changing his midfield far too often. He couldn't decide whether he wanted Paulinho or Fernandinho or Luis Gustavo. Uh, and Fred was who was a genius during the 2013 Confederations Cup and by the way had an amazing club career that a lot of people like to forget because he played so bad in the, in the 2014 World Cup um, was not firing and uh, I think people were concerned that there was this just unerring belief that maybe they're playing at home we've seen so many countries over the years who have maybe not been up to scratch but being on home soil has pushed them to levels that they couldn't that they didn't believe that they could reach and i think that there was a belief that that could happen and we spin that forward to the knockout stage so they get through the they get through the group stage with seven points they top the group yep. they beat brazil on they sorry brazil beats chile on penalties in the round of 16 they beat Colombia 2-1 in the quarterfinals, but as you were saying, 
Neymar injures his back. Yeah. And One he's... the dirtiest plays I've ever seen, by the way, that was not... Yeah. Red card, and it's a completely got away with that. But anyway, go on, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's okay. We're, it's all right. It's okay to be bitter. <laughs> it's it's okay. We're it's all right. It's it's football. We're allowed to be bitter. Um. So they win that game two one. So now, here you are, and we're going to talk about this game pretty much in depth. Eighth of July, at the Belo Horizonte, Brazil versus Germany. Now, the lineup for Brazil that day, I have it in front of me. Julio Cesar in goal, Mike Cohn at right back, David Luiz at um, center back, and he was actually the captain for this team, um, which uh, I think says a lot. But um, the other center back, and this is sort of underrated because Thiago Silva was actually, I believe, suspended. Uh, was he yellow card uh, accumulation suspension? Yes. That they couldn't get overturned. Sorry. So Dante took his place. Marcelo was the left back. Fernandinho um, was the central mid, along with Luis Gustavo. Hulk was the right wing. Um, the attacking midfielder was Oscar. The left wing back was Bernard. And the center forward was Fred. So let me ask you, just before we even get into the game, were you okay with that lineup? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, there are some changes that have been discussed, but yes, I, generally speaking, I thought that was a, a I mean, if you're going to go all the way back, I mean, Coutinho had just had the best season of his career at Liverpool. He wasn't even in the team. Uh, that's, that was a bit strange, but I think for the players that he had at his disposal, it was a decent enough team, better than the scoreline would suggest in the end. Yeah, and just just for the record, on the bench they had Danny Alves, they had Paulinho, who would come into this game, you had Maxwell, you had Enrique, you had Ramirez, you had Willian, who would come into this game. Um, anybody there? Would, why why didn't, just remind me, because I just forget, why didn't Alves play over Mike Cohn? The thought was, so, Danny Alves and Marcelo played with Thiago Silva and David Luiz in the opening match, actually against Croatia. And they played again against um, Chile, I believe, too. Um, the thought was that, and this has been completely rebuffed now by Chiche, uh, who's the current manager, that Danny Alves and Marcel could not play together. Uh, that they were too attacking and that they left the team just completely and utterly exposed. Little did they know. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, little did they know they were actually more exposed. Uh, yeah. But the thought was that Mykon was more, a bit more astute. Uh, and a bit more defensive, which I don't, I still don't understand the logic of that, but that was the thought. Okay, so, um, 11th minute, uh, Thomas Muller scores. At that point, are you worried? No, because I think, I just think a lot of people thought that he was, a lot of people thought Germany would win. I think that was a thought, but I just, and I thought, okay, um, and we talked about this earlier, Germans, with their like sort of ruthless efficiency, of course they score off a set piece, right? Um, and that it was just going to be, okay, they're going to go up 1-0 and probably hold on to that 1-0 lead, and it's going to be sort of curtains, and people are going to say, okay, you know, in Brazil, it, it was a good run, they lost their two best players in the quarterfinal, and, and that's that. Okay, so let me ask you a question. After that first goal, does Brazil not think, maybe we should get into some sort of, I wouldn't say defensive block, but, like, 
you're down one nil. You just gave up a goal. You're you're reeling a little bit. Is there ever a thought to going? Okay, I know we're Brazil, and I know we're this. We have this identity. But do you think it might not be the worst idea to maybe just sit back a little bit, absorb some pressure for a while, and then try to nick a goal on the counter at some point? Maybe get your sea legs back under you and start um, putting the pressure on later in the game. Do you think that was ever thought about But at, that, at the moment when Muller scores to make it 1-0? I, I just don't think it was – first, so there's a lot of factors here, right? But I just think that the team – and it, we'd have to go back to all the way to 2006, in my opinion, which is that you know they give the players the power in 06, they don't win, they bring in Dunga, he's a hard ass, they don't win, and then they bring in um, – oh, my gosh. Galari? No, no, Menezes uh, in between, and he's sort of a failure, doesn't know what he's doing, and then Scolari comes in, and he has all of 14 months to prepare a team to play the biggest matches on World Cup home soil in 64 years, and the team was ill-equipped. They did not have an identity, and I think that this was something that their the only identity was that they're playing at home. This was the identity. The identity was the home crowd's behind us, and we have Neymar. Those are the, those are the two identities. Yeah. And and we have Thiago Silva as our captain, so I'll give you three. Yeah. The only one remaining in that match was that they're playing at home, which does not affect what is happening on the pitch. Yeah. And they just, I think once the wheel started to come off, they had no one to look to. Yeah. And it just completely collapsed. Yeah, and, and speaking speaking of the wheels coming off, uh, Mirosav Klosa in the 23rd, Tony Kroos in the 24th, in the 26th, and Sami Khedira in the 29th. That made it 5-0 before the end of the 30th minute. And that's where you get the famous... Um, you get the famous pictures of all the fans crying in the stands and the stunned looks of the audience and... And you felt like what kind of made it even a little worse for Brazil. It, it, on top of all that, it seemed like Germany was legitimately having fun. Yeah. Like they thoroughly enjoyed the idea. You could you could imagine that Joachim Lowe just maybe just subtly going to their players and saying, "Wouldn't it be really cool if we could just kick the shit out of this team in their home country?" And you just, like, the smiles. And it wasn't like they were, like, over-the-top celebrating. It was just, like, they had those, like, smiles on their faces where it's like, I can't believe we're doing it this easily. Like, I mean, I've never seen a game like that. I don't think I'll ever see a game like that again. And you, you talk about the second half where Brazil tries to bring people on, but it doesn't matter. Shirley scores in the 69th and the uh, 69th and the 79th to make it 7-0. And Oscar gets a, I, I guess, well, let's call it a consolation goal in the 90th minute. A consolation goal. A consolation goal. To, you know, send the, send the fans home happy. But 7-1, what's the immediate sort of, again, it's hard to process the emotions of that, but the immediate reaction to that. The the not the not um, calm reaction. I want the what's the visceral guttural reaction to that in Brazil 
And if you can, what your guttural reaction to that was. I think shock uh, was the initial, and then it was just, this is catastrophe. Um, I I think when you talk to supporters of Brazilian football, I actually think really football fans in general most remember where they were, you know, when they watched that. I certainly remember where I was. Uh, For sure, I was in my my office at work watching it on a small screen, uh, you know what I mean, in in the corner of my computer screen and able to click out, you know, if my boss walked by and was asking what I was doing. I I thought it was a mistake. Like, I was, I just, I couldn't, I, I almost couldn't process it. You know what I mean? Like, you almost go into stages of grief and you're just like, denial. Like, this isn't happening. This is, this is just, it's, it's impossible. Um, I, I do think that the initial reaction or after sort of the shock reaction was that there needs to be big changes. You know what I mean? With the Brazilian national team and the way that it's run, as well as the domestic league. Uh, those were largely ignored uh, at the time. So it was sort of a waste of waste of uh, effort, but yeah, I mean, I do think, and a lot of people say this, but I think it's accurate. It was just shock. I don't think anyone really believed it. And I do want to point out that you know when Germany was pinging the ball around in the second half, uh, fan, you know, the the, the Brazilian fans were olaying. <laughs> I mean, they, they know good. There's a great quote by I think it was John Motson, who's the BBC commentator of that match. He said, "These fans know good football when they see it, and they do." Um, and so. There, there was also a recognition that this Brazil team was completely unprepared and completely outclassed by a team that had been essentially a decade in the making, you know, by the German Football Federation. Yeah, and you and you watch the, and you watch the highlights of that, and I've watched highlights of that game multiple times after watching it live because I I feel like it's just one of those historical, it's one of those historical games, like. There's been millions upon millions of soccer games played in the history of the world. Like, that game, I think, is in the top ten of games that we'll remember 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 100 years from now, if we're still around. That That's the type of impact that game had. And I think what I want to kind of talk about next, and just to kind of put a bow on that, they finished fourth because they lost to the Netherlands 3-0 in the, um, the I guess, the consolation third-place game, which I, I can't imagine anyone in Brazil really cared about. I can't even really imagine that the players cared about it all that much either. But what was the sort of plan going forward after that? And was, okay, by your laughter, I could tell that, that maybe there really wasn't a plan. But talk about sort of the year or two after that and what the Brazilian national team did to sort of try to recover from that shock. So the the, the problem that the national team, I think, is run into is that the CBF, which is the Brazilian Footballing Federation, is the way that they operate is they swing the pendulum, you know, one direction or the other, right? You know, and like I said earlier, the 2016 fails because it's the player power is too great. And there's no tactical, you know, discipline in the team. They swing the pendulum all the way over to someone like Dunga, who's saying, we're going to play like we did in 94. He was a member of that team. Yeah. And we're going to be defensively disciplined uh, th- during the match against the Netherlands where they ended up losing a 2010 World Cup. They have seven natural defenders on the pitch, plus Julio Cesar, so I guess eight technically. Um, so, you know what I mean? And they're swinging it back and forth with no regard to the fact that they're not creating a cohesive plan. 
And that's what they did. After the 2014 World Cup, they bring back Dunga uh, with the idea that he's going to introduce some sort of discipline and sort of right the wrongs. Uh, you know what I mean? That happened, that, that happened during the um, during the 2014 World Cup. And he's ultimately, he fails as well. Uh, they were terrible at the next Copa America. Those matches were borderline unwatchable. Um, and then he fails at the Centenario edition of the Copa America and gets canned because they go out to, in a group where they should have easily made it through. It was like, I think it was Haiti, uh, Ecuador, and Peru. I mean, you wouldn't dream of Brazil not making it out of that group, right? Um, so, it, like, uh, my laughter is just that there really was no plan. The idea was that, that they would sit, that they would put Dunga in, he would introduce some discipline, and then we would kind of see where we go from there. And he failed miserably because he was imposing a style on the team that the team was never meant to be playing. And in contrast to that, why has Tite worked so well up to this point? What has he done specifically with this team that has sort of stabilized it and put it into this position where they're legitimately a favorite to win the 2018 World Cup? Yeah, so I will say that I think the CBF really lucked out. Uh, Chiche is a brilliant manager. Uh, they brought him in. I think one of the things that separates him is that he's a truly global manager. Uh, he's traveled around the world. Um, he understands tactics uh, that he, is, he has learned from some of the greatest tacticians around the world, um, in Europe and otherwise. Uh, he was really successful at Crunchians as well. Uh, I think they won the club. They did win the Club World Cup when he was the manager there. Um, so he's a brilliant footballing mind, a brilliant tactical mind. Uh, and I, I think he brought in the right players. I mean, I think if you look at Dunga's team, he didn't have Coutinho really integrated into the team. To be honest, Neymar missed a lot of the matches that Dunga was manager for, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he just genuinely hated playing for him, which I would too, if that, those are the tactics that I was being handed. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that cannot be understated is that when Chiche became appointed, Gabriel Jesus really became started to become a superstar at Palmeiras. Um, and he has been a revelation for the national team. Um, Firmino's having a great season, and I don't want to take anything away from him, but people calling for Firmino to come back into the team now, it's ludicrous. Gabriel Jesus has made a massive, massive, massive impact on the team. Um, I also think that he... Chiche realized, as we talked about earlier, that he had two fullbacks who were world-class. Marcelo is the best left-back in the world by a fair margin. Uh, and Danny Alves is, is world-class as well, in my opinion. So yeah. he kind of realized that he had those you know, once-in-a-generation talents at his disposal. And he sort of built the team such that they could play, he could play both of them. Yeah. And that was something that has really changed the fortunes of the national team. I just think he gets it. I think he gets the importance of the stylistic side of it. But he's also a really great game player and sort of politician in the media. Uh, and it also helps that he's gotten great results that you're never wrong. If you get the right results. I think that Brazil are, I think Brazil are the, I would put them as the favorites slightly over Germany for really one specific reason. And that's that actually two reasons. The first reason is, I think they have two of the best five players in the world. And I consider Marcelo one of the best five players in the world. Like, I think... I I think you watch... Not to bring PSG into this, but... You watch that 3-1 uh, game that Real Madrid won against uh, PSG in the Bernabeu in uh, February. That was all Marcelo. 
that that caught that those two goals at the end were entirely because Marcelo decided to take the game over. And they and PSG had just absolutely no answer for that. And I think he's the type of player that is going to be so influential in a World Cup because I think he's going to be able to create those sort of chances. And he'll be able to create those continual chances that you need to score goals. And if you have Gabriel Jesus playing at a high level, you have him and you have Neymar, players who can kind of take advantage of that that sort of world-class service and that world-class positioning that Marcelo has. And Marcelo's also an incredibly underrated defender, too. Yeah. Like, he... he was very good in that in that in both those legs. It's just shutting shutting that left side down, and PSG really had nothing on that on that right side either game. So I think they're one of the favorites, if not the it's them or Germany. But let's just talk about the 2018, just the prospects um, going into that World Cup. Their group is uh, you, you. I think you may know the group. I, I sometimes my memory escapes me, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's Switzerland, Costa Rica, and Serbia. Yes, I know France's group. I know France, um, Australia, Peru, and Denmark. I know that I know that group by heart. It's some of the others that I have to start picking up again. So they should easily win all three of those games. Now, let me ask you a question just out of that group stage, really quickly. I'm assuming most of those teams are going to try to play a low block against Brazil. What's Brazil's answer to the low block that I think they had a tough time with in the group stage of the 2014 World Cup when they got it against Mexico? Yeah, so I think that this is one of the big sort of tactical questions that people ask about Chiche uh, is sort of what is his answer for a low block team because he faced one a couple months ago. It was November against England, and it was a nil-nil draw, and that England team was terrible. There was a crap team. I mean, they put out, I mean, there was no Harry Kane, no Deli Ali, you know, none of their stars played. They played B team at best. And they sat at the edge of the 18th for the entire match and sort of just waited for Brazil to try to unlock them and they weren't able to. So I think that that is a concern. And I have in my notes here, you know, I am wary of a couple different types of teams, but a team like England or Iceland in the knockout rounds who would not be keen to attack, uh, but sort of wait for that one mistake is a concern for sure. Now, the one thing that I would say is against Russia, he played them during the last set of friendlies. He experimented with a, a little bit of a different midfield. His preference at the moment is Casemiro, Paulinho, and uh, Renato Augusto or Fernandinho. So it's, it's three sort of more workmanlike players. He experimented a little bit against Russia by putting Coutinho in the midfield. They were left a little bit more open, but they certainly created a lot more chances. And so I'm wondering if against teams that play sort of uh, will park the bus against Brazil, if he'll try that out. And I hope he does, because I just I question whether playing three really stout defensive midfielders will be able to unlock a team that's keen to just wait for them to make one big mistake. Do you think that... As a hypothetical, if Brazil do not win the World Cup, do you think one of the main criticisms will be that they did not play Philippe Coutinho enough or play him in any real uh, significant way? Well, I think, yeah, if, if, if he doesn't play him in the midfield, yes. He's currently playing him at right wing, which is not 
I just don't think that's his most effective position. But yes, I, I think so. If he, if he doesn't play him in the midfield and they get bounced, I think people will ask that. Is like, Coutinho is a midfielder. Like, why does he not play him in midfield? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think it's tough when you have a manager that beat Argentina 3-0, beat Uruguay 4-1, uh, just beat Germany at the Olympia Stadion, just beat the pants off Russia. Oh, and beat Chile 3-0 when yeah. Chile had all to play for and Brazil had nothing to play for. Um, I, it's tough to question his methods. But, yes, that will be the biggest question that's asked of them uh, if they don't win the World Cup this summer. Um, I, I, and I, I'll ask this question. I'll be, I'll be objective. Is Neymar ready to be the number one star of a World Cup winning team? Because yes. that's what he's going to have to be. Yes, 100% he is. I actually think he's his killer instinct is better, in my opinion, than Messi's. That's a hot take, so I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, I think he has more killer instinct than Messi. I think it's, it's similar to Ronaldo. Uh, I think Ronaldo is someone who saves his best performances for the knockout rounds and, you know, and can play bad and come up with a goal. And I think Neymar is the same. Um, you know, when Neymar was 21 years old, he played in a World Cup on home soil. Uh, and scored. They had. A, they were playing against Chile. It's 120 minutes of frantic football. A South American rival. All the pressure in the world. A fifth penalty. If he doesn't hit it, there. You know, Chile has a chance to win, and he just slots it home. You know, it just sends the keeper the wrong way, and it looks effortless. And the thing that you can say about Neymar is he's a winner. He wants to win. That is the most important thing to him. And um, he's got that killer instinct. I think he's more than ready. I think he's been ready. Uh, and that's why I just get tired of hearing like haters talking about how he, you know, he can't win this, he can't win that. He's won everything there is to win already, and he's 25. Like, don't give me that. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and we'll, 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 I'll spend a little time just sort of on that Neymar topic, just because I've seen him, I've been watching him, you know, for years, and I've been watching him especially covering him. I think what he's learned this year, and I, I just see the difference. I saw the difference in that last game he played before he got hurt against Marseille. And if you watch that game, he he wasn't dominating in the sense that he wasn't on the ball all the time. And it's not that he shouldn't be on the ball most of the time in certain situations. But what you saw him start to develop is this ability to sort of pick the moment and understand sort of what the team needs at that time. And I think that's sort of the difference between what he was doing at Barcelona, which was sort of playing off of, it's, I guess in a sort of way, it's like being the second guitarist in a band. Like, everything you do works off of that lead guitar. Like, you just, you take whatever the lead guitar doesn't do, and you try to fit in, you pick your spots. I think... At PSG, he's had to do a little more of, I'm going to pull the strings here. I'm going to try to get this guy open. Like, I, I think his passing out of the midfield has been one of the most overrated, as, under, sorry, underrated aspects of his game. Because he's has the ability to get guys goals. And he's has the ability to score himself. So I think what his real um, task will be in this World Cup is he's going to have to get Gabriel Jesus, he's going to have to get Firmino if he plays any bit, or whoever they have in their attacking line. He's going to have to not only get himself goals or get himself, you know, open, he's going to have to get other people open. And I think he started to do that before his injury. 
And I think it really is going to bode well for um, Brazil. I, I, I'm not ready to pick a winner yet. I'm going to wait for the last, um, the last show of this World Cup project to do that. So stay tuned, everybody. But since you're not, um, since I'm going to have you on record right now, do you think that Brazil can win this World Cup? And but also, do you think they will? Why or why not? I. Definitely they can. Uh, they have the players. I think they have the best squad of uh, anyone in the world. And I think to be as frank as I possibly can, I don't see a lot of teams out there that can really push them in the sense that there is one big hulking gorilla in the room that could push them, and it's Germany. And it's only, But the problem with Germany is I still don't know what their best team is. Like, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I think that's underrated. I think Brazil know who their 13, 14 guys are. I don't think Germany do. Yes. Yep. I have no faith in Spain still. Uh, I just haven't seen enough of them, you know, playing really well uh, to to have faith in them. I think France's manager doesn't know how to put the pieces together. I think he's got a ton of great pieces, but he doesn't know how to properly fit them into the system that he really wants. Argentina is a joke. They'll never win. You have me on record as saying that. <laughs> and um, I, I just, but I think beyond that, I really, I, I could see Brazil slipping up before I could see them losing to one of the big powers. Just to be honest, I, I yeah. just think Brazil has the players, the team, the system. This is their year. Chase Haslip, thank you. Chase Haslip, thank you for coming on to the World Cup Project. Uh, tell us where um, we can follow you on Twitter. Uh, talk about your podcast and what you're working on. Sure. So you can, uh, I'm on Twitter, chase H underscore FP. That's my personal account, but definitely follow Canary and blue, the podcast that I host. It's a weekly podcast on the Brazilian national team. Canary and blue FP is that is the handle. Um, every week we're interviewing people from around the world. We've had people from Mark Damon's own podcast, PSG talk on talk about Neymar. Um, talk about the players, talk about the selection decisions, um, talk about sometimes we talk about things that are going on in the Brazilian domestic league um, to this week or no, I'm sorry, Mark, you'll post this in the future, won't you? Yes, I will. Okay. Let me talk about this. Let me change the, the, uh, the last part here then I'll say this. We just released a retrospective podcast on Julio Cesar, which covers his entire career. It's more of a documentary style podcast, which we're really proud of. So check that out. Um, but yeah, Definitely give us a follow if you're interested in Brazilian football. We're always talking about it on Twitter as well. Absolutely. Uh, Chase, thank you so much for coming on. And for Chase Hayslip, this has been your World Cup Project host, Mark Damon. Au revoir for now. Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature PSG Talk contributor Eduardo Razo and our discussion about the passion of El Tri. It's an examination of the Mexican national team and the relationship that millions of Mexican-Americans have to it. The theme for the World Cup project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show is brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this is your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now.